The deeper Christian life is no deeper than that of the clear teaching of God's Word. It is not a mystery withheld from anyone, but made known to all who will listen and obey. Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. May Christ lead you deeper into Himself today as together we explore God's Word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. God has provided a spring of life to flow constantly to His people and His church. We pray for revival because that flow gets stopped up. The enemy blocks up that spring of refreshing, and revival can't come to us, but that we pray for it. But prayer is not enough. We're going to have to take the rubble out of the well, and one of the significant chunks of rubble is doubt in the authoritative voice of God sounding out to us in every syllable of God's Word. When you go to the Bible and you just go to to find a list of rules of how to behave in this life, you'll find that by giving yourself to make the Bible just a book of follow the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Learn to be a good and moral citizen. Make the Bible that and you'll find out very shortly that it won't even have any moral pull in your life. When the Bible comes a book merely that we read to find out how we ought to behave and think and feel in society, we end up behaving and thinking and feeling wrongly. Let me give you some examples from a historian's description of the moral condition of England during the time period prior to the revival that John Wesley and George Whitfield brought in. Here's what the author writes. I think this comes from Skevington Wood in his work on John Wesley. This is the period of time in England prior to the great revivals that were started by the Wesleys and by Whitfield. Moral laxity was reflected and fed by many amusements then in vogue. The lewdness of the theater was regularly commented on and then celebrated. The demoralized literature led one contemporary writer to say that a greater mass of trash and rubbish never disgraced the press of any country than the ordinary novels that filled and supported and circulated in the libraries. Twin snares of drinking and gambling were evident in every segment of society, from the staggering neighbor to the tottering old man to the slurring-tongued bishop, to the easy-blinking chaplain, to the life of the party vicar. The moral decline spread expressing itself in cruel and debasing sports, and violent crime was soaring alarmingly. So what was happening in England that was causing this complete moral breakdown in England before this great revival broke out? What caused this supposedly Christian nation of England to become so corrupt? Well, what had happened was the Scriptures had lost their place of authority as the word of the Almighty God before the majority of those in the churches of England. In the place of the great doctrines of the faith and the great teachings of God's doctrines and precepts, they began to raise up the teachings of moralisms and civility and being a good man and a good citizen. And one godly man wrote it this way. A lamenting over this period of time, who wrote during that time in which it took place, Christ's doctrines and precepts are so generally slighted and neglected that little Christianity is now found among the Christians themselves. The doctrines of sin and the wrath of a holy God against it and the remedy of the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and of the regenerating and justifying work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer were absent from the pulpit. What prevailed instead in the pulpit was a Distinct distrust of theology. Biblically-based doctrinal teaching was at a discount, and its place was tepid, innocuous moralizing. 
the words that were taught were the golden rule and the rule of good conduct and how to be a gentleman or a positive member of the English society. These were the controlling themes in the study of God's Word. And so man was exercising his limited power over God's Word. Subjectivism. Here's what one historian writes about that time. Evil and guilt, sin and redemption... The whole personal drama and appeal of religion was forgotten and rationalized away. And the easy-to-swallow eupeptic optimism, that is, the easily digestible optimisms of politicians pervaded the teachings of the church. In other words, the teaching of the church was all about political correctness. Just saying what people wanted to hear. Thomas Jones Southwark, a man of that time period before this revival broke out, writes lamenting what's happening in the church of England at that time. And the impact of this turning away from the authority of God's word had on the church and had on the society that the church was supposed to be influencing. He says this, We have preached morality so long. We have preached morality so long that we have hardly any morality left. This moral preaching has made our people so very immoral that there is no length of wickedness of which they are not afraid to run into. Listen, You analyze the proper moral actions over and over again and you make it something that is the scheme of a man instead of the immediate response of a life encountering the revelation of God and His revealed will. You know, even when you talk about the social issues of our day and you keep breaking them apart and debate them, somewhere along the line, we just say, this is God's will, this is God's word. We bow to it. You may want us to debate with you, and I'm willing to talk with you because I want you to think I'm somewhat reasonable. But listen, the case is settled in my heart and mind. God has spoken. I'm going to be true and obedient to Him. I'm not under the obligation to prove to you that I'm a rational, even-minded, open-minded individual. I'm a follower of the Lamb, and I'm surrendered to the will of God. God has spoken with authority. You know, when I was a young man... I remember hearing a preacher preach on one of the, the Ten Commandments, uh, and the, he was on the commandment that was the commandment against adultery. And he spoke rather eloquently about the dangers of committing adultery, of the shame and the suffering that it would bring upon the individual and upon the individual's family members and on his own society, of the destruction and insecurity that it would introduce into his home of the fact that ultimately it was a lie and that it would not satisfy the individuals who were committing it. As far as he went, it was true and it was okay. But what I took away from this message that he preached was that never at one point did he speak of it as a sin against the expressed will of a holy God. He never spoke of it as an affront to the nature of God. He never spoke of it as a rejection of God's own provision and gift to him as an offense to the God that he had to live under judgment before. He never spoke in that way. He gave all the rational reasons why it was destructive to the individual and his society and those around him. Without referencing once that it was a sin against God. That is, in my mind, an illustration of moralisms and subjectivism that drives us further and further away from hearing the voice of God. And the ultimate end of taking the book of that way is that we lose hold of this moral life altogether. This is what happens when we no longer recognize that these are the words of the Almighty Sovereign God. 
This is the end that we come to when we take God's word and we relegate it to a moral manual for conduct or for strategies on personal and social advancement and when its great doctrinal themes are forgotten or laid aside. So here's where we're at with a brief application. What's the answer for ourselves and for our age when men are questioning, has God really spoken? Did he really mean that? Is that what he said? Maybe there's another way of looking at this text. And when men can no longer get into the pulpit and say with authority, thus saith the Lord. What's the answer? Well, revival did come to England. It came when a few individuals who were inflamed by the passions of the Holy Spirit, like Wesley and Whitfield, stood up on gravestones and preached to people as they were walking out from their churches the great doctrines of the Almighty God from the authority of His Holy Word. <laughs> and when they grabbed hold of that and they began to preach in that way, as they began to reaffirm the fundamental and supernatural realities of the gospel, well, then God began to bear in again on individuals. And He began to show individuals that this Word, though it's not incompatible with reason, and it certainly is not incompatible with our sentiments always, nevertheless, it transcends and surpasses them as the Word of God. And it's compelling for that reason alone. Here's a reason why sometimes I'll just jump in and start preaching without giving any introduction, without providing some kind of emotional context or talking about some need that has to be solved. And the reason is God's Word ought to be heard and obeyed and listened to and be compelled to listen to for no other reason than it's God's Word. It's God's Word. Let's hear it and listen to it. Let's love it and adore it. So how do I begin to extract the rubble out of this well? What do I do? Well, let me give you a few things very quickly. First, make sure when you open this book and you read it that you take your seat before the authoritative sovereign God of all creation. In other words, as you read this book, be less a reader and more a listener. When you read it and God puts His finger upon your heart, don't say something like, Okay, but what's the linguistic meaning of that word? Instead, respond to the simple instruction of God to your life in some way like the revivalist Evan Roberts taught during the Welsh revivals of the 1900s. He had a list of how we did come before God in His Word. It was this. Any sin in your life, confess it. Anything doubtful in your life, away with it. Whatever the Holy Spirit says to you in the Word, do it. Now publicly, give confession to Jesus Christ. That was it. Pretty simple. Here's another one. Be careful not to read the Word merely to find a personal word for yourself. Let God speak and listen for no other reason to listen to and obey the voice of your Master. For no other reason to get familiar with the cadence of His voice. For no other reason than to begin to understand and see how He works through human history. Let this Word be the place where God reveals to us his way among men, his doctrine, his purposes, his precepts. Don't just come to it in order to find a note of personal application for yourself. You'll find it periodically. Don't always expect it. Just come to submerge yourself before a God who's spoken and who speaks and who works and acts. The third one is this. Read this word to find God in it to discover God revealing Himself to you, that His own self-revelation puts you in a proper place. 
When you read this word, ask yourself, what does this reveal to me about God Himself? And when God begins to reveal Himself to you, what He'll do is He'll reveal you to you. He'll reveal to you your need. He'll reveal to you your sin. And once He does that, He will reveal to you His Son as your life and the answer for your need and your sin. He'll reveal to you as the one who is a present help in the time of need. He'll reveal to you His Son as your all in all. He'll reveal Himself to you. He'll reveal yourself to you. And then He'll reveal the God-man Jesus Christ who is sufficient for all we need to us. And it's all in the Word. It's all to be found. Seek God in the Word. Just seek God in the Word. All those other things will fall into place. When the Word is read properly under the sovereign hand of God, it always points by the Holy Spirit in the end to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the well opens up and we drink Him in. Let's bow our heads in spirit. Our Heavenly Father, there are disciplines that we must exercise in this place as individuals, as a people together, as your children. Disciplines, O oh God, that we pray would not only begin to inform our lives, bring us back fully into the well of your refreshing life, habits that we might develop that would encourage one another to look to you and trust you. The prayer for rising disciplines in the church is a prayer for renewed commitment to the discipline of sitting under God's word, listening responsively to his speech of resisting supplanting his thoughts with our own, imposing our own opinions on top of his decrees. Let us pull that rubble out of the well. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. For a copy of this message, just call us at 208-331-4096. Until the next time, God bless you.